All right, we are in our physical one things, our physicality focus of our one things process, a two-year process of uh, changing the eight major areas of our lives, growing and developing in the eight major areas of our lives. And we're in the midst of a three-part series this month entitled The Mindset, uh, and start entitled Running to Win. Running to Win is the name of this series this month. And by the way, if you missed last month's series, it was entitled The Body and the Bible. The Body and the Bible. It was a three-part series that we did last month, and you can uh, get those messages for free from our website, livinghopecc.us, www.livinghopecc.us. Go to Recent Sermons under Media, and all of the messages. Matter of fact, it's like a year's worth of messages there that you can click and download for free. Remember we used to sell CDs for $3 each? You know, it was just covering costs. Didn't get rich off it. But uh, now we give them away for free. We give the messages away for free. So we hope you go and get those. Uh, Running to Win is the name of this series. And this series, Running to Win, covers the three basic components of the mindset of a champion. Or the three primary components of the mindset of a champion. So you want to have the mindset of a champion. When we're talking about running to win... Paul said, don't you know that in a race all of the runners run, but only one wins the prize? You should run in such a way as to win. That is, you should run like you're going to win, not running like you're just there to run. And if you go watch any race, you can tell the difference between those who have a prospect of winning and those who are just kind of showing up because, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, and they're, they're there to engage in foolishness. There's a lot of people that are in church just to engage in foolishness, not because they're actually running to win. And I want you to be in it to win it. I want you to run to win. So we identify the three major components of the mindset of a champion as three things. Number one, a vision for victory. And that was the subject of last week's message, a vision for victory. Last week we talked about how to get a vision for victory. Today we're talking about the second component. The second component is an assessment of the present. An assessment of the present. And then the third component that we're going to deal with next week is a, a, a workable plan. So you need a vision for victory, you need an assessment of the present, and you need a workable plan. And we're going to talk about how to get those three things and what it means for our physical one thing focus. And I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. And I want us to look at this passage of Scripture here. We focused on the story of Nehemiah as we've uh, talked about these three things. And as we know, Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah takes place during the captivity of Israel. And during this time of captivity under Babylon, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And, but what he destroyed in the city of D- Jerusalem was the temple. And he drug 60% of the populace of, of uh, Jerusalem off into captivity. He destroyed the temple, drug off the brightest and best of their population, left the rest to just kind of rot in the city. And now, this is uh, a couple of decades later, and not only has the temple been torn to the ground, but now the city was attacked again, and the walls and the gates had been broken down. The walls had been broken down, and the gates had been burned with fire. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king in the Persian Empire, which has overthrown the Babylonian Empire at this point. And he's visited by his brother Hanani and some other men from Jerusalem. And he inquires about the state of Jerusalem. And they tell him, they say, the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down and the gates have been burned to the ground. And when Nehemiah hears this, he falls on his face and he weeps and he mourns for days. And then he gets up and he prays 
and he gets a vision for victory. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he goes in before the king, and he shares his vision with the king, and the king gives him the permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to restore the gates of the city. And so now we're going to pick this up here at verse 11 of chapter 2 of Nehemiah, and we're going to see what happened here as this goes forward. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or others who would be doing the work. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you'd speak to us by the power of your word, that you'd activate our hearts and minds, and that you'd move us forward. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to work through this piece by piece, and I'm going to start in verse 11. And he says in verse 11, he says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying three days, he says, I stayed there three days, and then I went to look at the damage. He says, before I did anything, I just hung out for three days. He didn't, do, he didn't go right to work. He didn't pull right into the city and immediately start trying to change stuff. He hung out for three days. He doesn't say a word to anyone. He doesn't assess the damage. And, and I read that and I thought, what was he doing during these three days before he actually gets to work? And I think he was doing three things. Number one, I think he was preparing his heart. See, he knew that he was about to see something traumatizing. He knew. See, he had heard the report of how bad things were, but now he was about to look at how bad things actually were. And he knew that he was going to have to face it head on, and he knew that what he saw was going to sock him in the stomach and knock the wind out of him. See, all of us know intrinsically that if we were to really take an honest look At the current state of things, I mean, if I really face how bad things actually are, I'm going to get hit in the stomach. And so what we often do is we fail to accurately assess the present because we're afraid of how bad it really is. Me and my wife don't actually talk about the state of our relationship because we're afraid to face how bad it really is. You won't go to the doctor and actually get a test for that pain that keeps happening, for that symptom that keeps propping up because you're afraid of how bad it actually is. You're afraid to get a bad prognosis. You're afraid to hear the word cancer. You won't actually step on the scale because you're afraid that it might require a fourth digit. (laughs) You know that closet where you just dump all your stuff, you just stuff it in there, you're afraid to pull all that stuff out and actually look at it because you're afraid of the condition of your stuff. You're afraid to clean out under your bed because you don't know how long it's going to take. You're afraid to open your mail because you just don't want to see the state of those bills. 
You're afraid. You know, you need to start answering your phone. You need to start returning the phone calls of those voice messages that start with 800. And he knows that he's going to have to face it, and he knows that it's not going to be pretty. Everybody in this room, you got one place in your life that you know, I'm going to have to face this one day, and it's not going to be pretty. I'm going to have to deal with this at a certain point. I can run, but I can't hide. I can avoid it, but at a certain point, i got to deal with it. And Nehemiah put a time limit on. He said, I'm going to deal with it in three days. In three days, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to face it, but I'm going to wait three days first. And he spent three days preparing his heart, preparing his heart, because he knew that once he looked at it, it would knock the wind out of him. He would have to fight discouragement. See, the thing is, you can get a big vision, a great vision, a big dream about your future, but until you face your present, it's just a dream. You haven't actually begun to move toward that dream until you face the fact of your present situation, until you look at it according to the, re- the real reality of what it is. And so Nehemiah said, I got a vision, but I don't want my vision to get knocked down because of the, the, the reality of the state of things. You get a vision for how good it's going to be, and then you look at how bad it's going to be, and instead of all of a sudden your vision for victory retreats, And you simply concede defeat. Yeah, it's actually worse than I thought it was. I actually can't do that. And so he was preparing his heart. Sometimes you got to spend some time preparing your heart. I'm going to fix this thing, but first I'm going to take three days to prepare my heart. You better believe he was praying and seeking the face of God. God, strengthen my heart because i got to face this thing. But I don't know if I have the strength to face this thing right now. So prepare my heart so I can face it. Prepare my heart so that I can look at it without succumbing to discouragement. Prepare my heart so that I can look at it with my heart full of faith. So I can look at it and say, I see how bad you are, but I also see how great my God is. He was preparing his heart. Secondly, he was gathering his strength. He knew that once he started down this road, it wasn't going to be a short one. It was going to be a long one. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to fix this thing in three days. He knew this was not going to be a 45-minute fix. He knew he couldn't speak one vision, have one conversation, and it was done. He knew it was going to be a long, long, winding road. He knew that it was going to be a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. And when you know that you're running a marathon and not a 100-yard dash, you don't take off sprinting. If you go see a marathon and somebody takes off sprinting, you don't cheer. You say, slow down, fool. (laughs) Slow down. You can't last that long. You can't run a marathon at at full speed. you got to pace yourself. He had to take time to rest before embarking on this journey. And the principle that is derived from this for us is that rest must always be a primary component of your strategy for success. Don't think that the battle is is won simply by you working on the problem. You also got to rest on the problem. And you got to know your limitations so you don't burn yourself out. I think the third thing he was doing is he was building intimacy with people. He knew that whatever the situation was, he couldn't do it alone. And he knew that he was going to have to ask for help. But he also knew that he had been disconnected from the people that he needed to actually do the work. And so before asking them for help, he needed to reconnect with them relationally. And so he took three days to go see his mama and his daddy, his brothers and sisters. He took three days. He had to take some time to go stop by Aunt Mabel's house and ask her about her bunion. Yeah. 
right? He had to call his old homies, his friends that he used to hang out with, his old buddies from school. He had to check Facebook to find out who was in town that he hadn't seen, and he sent them Facebook messages that says, let's hook up and have coffee. He wasn't talking vision. He wasn't saying, let's do this. He was just hanging out. He was just taking time to reconnect because he understood that when you just call somebody when you got a problem and you need some help, you burn that relation out, relationship out real quick. See, there's some people in this room right now that whenever your name comes up on somebody's phone, they think, oh, Lord, what do they need now? When your name comes up on someone's phone, do they think, oh, Lord, what did I do this time? Or do they think, you know what, I want to answer this call because this person always has something good to say to me. See, some of us are like that prophet who never had anything good to say. (laughs) Well, (laughs) he took time to reconnect with people. He took time to reestablish a positive level of interaction with people. He took time to look into people's eyes and to show them that he actually cared about them. He took time to rebuild solidarity and a sense of community and a sense of oneness and we are oneness. And he took time to to sit with people and to shoot the breeze and to say it's, it's actually not all about work. At the end of the day, it's about the quality of our relationships. He took the time to build community and to reconnect with people. See, the thing we need to understand is that the majority of the great problems of our world are actually not due to the thing that it looks like it's due to. Most of the problems in our world are relational problems. Poverty? Poverty is not about money. It's about relationships. Homelessness is not about money. It's about relationships. Listen, because what you're... Listen, I will never be homeless. Can I just say that? I'll never be homeless. I didn't say I'll never be broke. I might be broke, but I won't be homeless. Why? Because I will cultivate and nurture relationships with people who will love me too much to ever let me be on the street. Are you hearing me? See, the people that you're nurturing relationships with today, you may need them tomorrow. And you better, you better make sure today that you have maintained enough connection and intimacy with them so that if you need them tomorrow, they're happy to open their home to you. In verse 12, he says, I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. As he sets out to assess the damage, what's central in his mind is that he's not there to do something for Nehemiah. He's there to do something for Jerusalem. See, we got to get this. This is his city. This is a city he was born in. Probably the house he grew up in had been torn down too. He lost memories. He lost family members. He lost things that were important to him there. But when he goes, what's central in his mind is not what Nehemiah lost, but what Jerusalem lost. So we got to get this. He was doing this for others and not for himself, for Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And this is the attitude that we have to have about our physical health. Because, see, I'm never really going to get anywhere with this physical one thing until I fully decide that this is not for Benjamin. It's for Alethea. See, I need Alethea to be confident that her daddy's going to be around long enough to see her children, to play with her little kids, and maybe even to see their children. See, this is for Sonny. 
See, I need my wife to know that she's not always going to have to pray that God would heal me of Dunlap's disease. You know what Dunlap's disease is, right? It's when you take off your shirt and your gut Dunlap's at least three to six (laughs) inches over your gut, over your belt. That's Dunlap's disease. This is for the church. I need, I need the church to know that I'm going to do whatever I can to ensure that I'm going to be your pastor for a long time. Yes. I'm not going to be dying in a heart attack at 40 years old. Right. See, this, what I'm saying is you've got to think about this. You're, gonna, you're not doing this. When you're talking about your physical health, you've got to start understand, with the understanding that my life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. I don't belong to me. And so taking care of this physical body is not just about me. It's about the people who love me. Because you getting healthy, listen, nobody will be happier about you getting healthy than the people who actually love you. Amen. 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 Thank you. And he says, I set out during the night. I set out during the night. He set out to assess the damage at first at night because he doesn't want anybody to know Mm -hmm. that he's seriously looking at the situation. See, up till now, everybody thinks he's just there for a visit. Mm -hmm. Hey, Nehemiah came home. What's he doing here? I think he just came to visit us. They thought he was just there kicking it. They had no idea that he had come to change everything. They had no idea that he had a big dream in his heart that was going to change everything for everybody. And he's keeping it a secret. He's not telling anybody. And he says, I set out at night to assess the damage. Why? First of all, can you imagine how tough that must have been for Nehemiah? See, some of us can't keep no secrets. If I got a big thing in my heart, I can't keep it a secret for five minutes. I got to work on that. If I get a big dream, a big vision, I'm already announcing it to the church. My wife always jokes about how when when she got pregnant with Alethea, the moment we saw that pregnancy test said positive, we looked at each other and said, we're only going to share this with just a few close people. And then we started to text those few close people. The only problem was my definition of who a few close people were and hers were different. Hers was like three or four. Mine was maybe 30 or 40. <laughs> and she said she starts getting text messages from, from all kinds of people. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. She's like, how do you know? <laughs> I'm over there <laughs> texting. I got to tell everybody. Nehemiah didn't tell anybody. And he sets out at night. He goes to assess the damage by himself at night. Let me ask you a question. When you feel like something's wrong in your body... Do you set out at night to assess the damage or, at day, or during the daytime? What do I mean by that? Who's the first person you tell? Your friends or your doctor? Yeah, God. Of course, God. But after God, who do you tell next? Do you tell your friends or your doctor? See, let me, let me tell you the problem. This is the problem. The problem is your friends have been diagnosing your illnesses. You just told your friend Lucretia, I got this pain in my chest. She said, yeah, you're probably having a heart attack. You're probably going to die by tomorrow. Yeah. And, and then Lucretia, is, is not, she's not only going to diagnose you, but she's going to prescribe the medication. What you need to do is go take you a couple cobwebs and drink some turpentine. That's what my grandmama used to do. You need to get you some Mercurecone and put on it. <laughs> you know, you get, take some of that Tussin. You need some Tussin. You know what I'm talking about? 
you know, when your friends are diagnosed, your friends are diagnosing you and prescribing the illness. Instead of telling your friends you got a problem, go to your doctor before you get everybody all upset. I mean, I was thinking about that. If I got a, it's like me getting a a pain in my chest and I tell my, my wife, oh Lord, I got a pain in my chest. And now she's thinking I'm having a heart attack. And then she says, let's go to the doctor. No, I ain't going to no doctor. That's how people do. I ain't going to no doctor. No, what are they going to do? Well, you just said you got a pain in your chest. Hopefully save your life. How about go to the doctor first and let the doctor tell you it's nothing. It's just a sprained muscle. And then tell your wife the story after you figured out it's okay. You got half, your, half the folks who love you worried about you because you're telling everybody about your physical stuff except the people who could actually do something about it. Right. Yeah. Amen. Nehemiah sets out at night. He says, I'm not going to tell everybody about this problem or even about my dream for fixing it. He sets out at night. He's got this dream in his heart, but he can't share it with anyone yet. Why? Because he doesn't yet have a plan. See, right now it's just a dream, and there's a difference between a dream and a plan. A dream is the big picture of what you want to see happen and you should definitely hold on to your, plan, your dreams and reach for bigger dreams and believe for your dreams. I'm not downplaying a dream, but a dream without a plan is a hallucination. See, if you're telling everybody about your dream and then they figure out you don't have a plan, they're not going to f- spend five minutes daydreaming with you. If you need to get people on your team in order to see your dream come to pass, you need a plan. Because nobody can connect with a dream that doesn't have a plan. There's some folks who have been dreaming for 20 years about starting a business, about opening a company, about changing something, about getting a car. And, no, and you wonder why nobody wants to hear about that dream anymore. Because you've shown them you, that you're not willing to take even step one towards it. And you just want people to get excited with you about nonsense. Get a plan. Tell people about the plan when it's planned. Step one, step two, and get people on your team to help you with your plan. People will help you with your plan. People will help you with your dream when you tell them about your plan. Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligent lead to profit. Not the dreams of the diligent, the plans of the diligent. Because see, dreams and diligence don't belong in the same sentence. Because the moment you apply diligence to your dreams, you cease to be a dreamer and immediately become a planner. Mm. You hearing me? Yeah, can you say that again? Nah, you get the tape. (laughs) 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 But some of you say, God, you know, God promised me this and I'm believing for it. God promised me this and I've got faith. You know, some stuff you can't plan for. Some promises of God are too big to be planned out. Abraham, you're going to be with the father of many nations. Count the sands of the sea. I can't count them. That's how your kids are going to be. Now, how do you plan that? How do you plan to have a multitude of kids? Sarah, get ready. <laughs> you got to have at least, you know, an octu- octuplets a year. One set of octuplets a year for the next 20 or 30 years. You can't plan for that. There is a realm that we call the realm of promise. And the only thing you can apply to the realm of promise is faith. See, God will often give us promises that are beyond the scope of our ability to enact. And when Abraham believed God's promise, God said, that's it, you're righteous. 
Righteous means you've done the right thing. That's what righteousness is. It is doing the right thing. And all Abraham could do was believe. And God said, you've done it. You've done the right thing. You've believed. But there's another realm. See, promise is the realm in which we have no power other than our faith. We can believe and we can wait. And that's about it. But there's another realm and it's called the realm of command. And in the realm of command, our faith must give rise to our works. In the realm of command, waiting on the Lord doesn't do any good. God's already spoken. When I hear people say they're praying about something that the Lord told them to do. I know the Lord told me to do this, but I'm praying on it. Who are you praying to? What are you hoping will happen? He'll change his mind? If the Lord told you to do it, there's only one thing to do. It. You just got to do it. You just got to do it. And so when we're talking about the realm of command, the realm of command corresponds to the realm of choice. You can choose to do it or you can choose not to do it. You can choose to obey or you can choose not to obey. If you're, if you're unequally yoked with an unbeliever, I'm not talking to married folks. If you already married them, you're stuck. <laughs> you ain't got no way out. You, you, love, you love them until they get saved and believe for them. And I'm believing right with you. I'm not saying, I, didn't, I don't mean you're stuck like you're trapped. I mean, you don't change your mind on that because they're unbelievers. Yeah, what I'm saying is if you are not married yet and, you're, and you are unequally yoked with an unbeliever, change it. You say, well, I'm praying on No, don't pray on The Bible said not yeah. to do that. Right. Don't, don't be doing no missionary dating now. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to love them into the kingdom. Yeah, love them into the kingdom before you start on the dating side. Amen. God's already spoken. See, Nehemiah didn't come to Jerusalem to believe. He didn't come to tell everybody, I heard the Lord destroyed this whole city, but I just want you to, I'm believing with you. See you later. I'm believing. God's going to rebuild this. I'll see you guys later. He didn't come to Jerusalem to believe. He came to do something. He came to change it. Some of you are believing in places where you need to be doing something. Come on. He's not there to believe a promise. He's there to obey a command. The dream that God put in his heart was not a promise that God would fulfill one day without Nehemiah. It was a command that God had put in his heart that he would fulfill. See, there's some stuff that only God can do, and there's some stuff that only you will do. And the problem is when you try to do the stuff that only God will do, and when you're waiting for God to do the stuff that only you can do. Some of us are acting in the place where we should be waiting, and we're waiting in the place where we should be acting. And we need to get it right. Nehemiah knew that if he was to successfully obey God's command, he needed the help of the people. And in order to get the help of the people, he needed to get a plan. And in order to get a plan, he needed an accurate assessment of the situation. And an accurate assessment of the situation only comes from facing every component of the truth of the moment. An accurate assessment of the situation only comes when you face every component of the truth of the of the moment. When we're talking about the truth of the moment, we're talking about what is true right now. What's true right now? I'm not talking about what you're believing for tomorrow. What's true right now? Faith is not the denial of the state of the present. It's not the denial of, you say, the doctor says, you got cancer. I reject that. I renounce that in Jesus' name. I don't have cancer. In Jesus' name, I say, no, no, I got the test right here. You got cancer. Faith is not denial. You can rise up and say, well, in Jesus' name, I believe that's going to be healed. But don't call the doctor a liar when they're holding the test in their hand. 
say, that devil is a liar. Well, this test ain't a liar. It's the truth. It's not the ultimate truth, but at least it's true right now. Say, why don't you go to the doctor, get that checked out? Because I'm believing God to heal me. Yeah, well, believe you're behind all the way to the doctor. Hmm? Believe you're behind all the way to the pharmacy and get that medicine and believe it all the way down into your stomach. Believe until the doctor says, yes, you've been healed. Jesus told him, go show yourselves to the priests. Let the priest die. Let the priest bear witness to the fact that the healing has taken place before you stop taking that medicine. You hearing me? Face the facts. See, this is the strength of the AA program. It starts with facing the fact. Hi, I'm Benjamin, and I'm an alcoholic. Not really, but, you know. The problem is that they teach people to keep saying that even 10 years after they've been delivered. See, when we face the reality of the present, it doesn't mean we keep confessing that reality for the rest of our lives. Your present is not your future. A vision for victory is what can empower you to face the present without falling into depression or condemnation. Okay? All right, let's move on. Nehemiah 2.13. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. He goes on to say, Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. So we see a couple, of, a couple of things here. We see the valley gate. We see the dung gate. We see the fountain gate. And we see the king's pool. So now he's going to assess the present condition of Jerusalem, the, the current state of Jerusalem. And in order to do it, he actually doesn't look at every single component of the reality. Because we're going to see in the next chapter that there's many, many different gates and many, many different sections. And he, he doesn't actually have to look at all of them. And, and you know, you don't, when you're talking about accurately assessing your present situation, it doesn't mean you have to look at all of the junk in your life right now. Yeah. If you looked at all of it, it would overwhelm you. Yeah. I mean, if you, just said, if you just decided today, I'm going to look at every place in my life that's messed up. You'd need therapy. For about 10 years after that moment. They'd have to put you in a white jacket. You know, they might have to electrocute you or something. Why? Because it's too much. Nobody can handle all that. We, I mean, you, it's going to take you the rest of your life to work through all of your foolishness. I mean, that's just, that's just real. But you know what Nehemiah did? He assessed the low place and the high place. He says, at least I can look at the limits. I can look at the boundaries. The lowest place and the highest place. And if I can get a feel for how to bring order to the lowest place in my life and the highest place in my life, then I can work out what's in the middle in time. You following me? So when he went to look at the low place, he looked at the valley gate and the dung gate. And when he went to look at the high place, he looked at the fountain gate and the king's pool. The bottom was the valley gate and the dung gate, and the top was the fountain gate and the king's pools. Follow me. Now what he sees in those places is that the walls had been broken down and the gates had been burned with fire, which is interesting because the walls and the gates were made of the same material. 
Why does the enemy make a distinction between the way he treats the walls and the way he treats the gates? He breaks down the walls and says, that's enough. But the gates, it's not enough to break them down. He burns them with fire. That is, the enemy attacks the gates far more jealously than he attacks the walls. Why is that? Because when we're talking about your walls, we're talking about your general boundaries, which is the semblance of order around your life. When you don't like what somebody's saying to you, you can put up your walls in a second. Talk to the hand. That's how you put up your walls. Talk to, talk, you ever talk to somebody and their walls were up so high you couldn't get in? You know what I'm talking about? You feel that. It's like, you, everybody in this place knows how to put up your walls. Nothing getting in here. I'm a fortified city. My walls are so high you can't get in. But for most of us in this place, even if your walls are up, your gates are torn down. Because somebody says to you, you know what? You're stupid. You're like, I ain't talking to you. And then you go home and cry about it. Well, why are you crying? I thought, no, you put up your walls, which was your public way of saying what you're saying doesn't mean anything to you. But then you go home and cry about it because you didn't have any gates. And what they were saying actually came all up in your gates. It still came in your city. And so the enemy cares more about your gates because a gate is an entryway, a passageway, and an access point. And as long as you have no gates, even if your walls are 100 feet high, he can run right up in your city and do whatever he wants to do. And so he says, in these places, I not only have to rebuild the walls, i got to restore the gates. So first, he goes and assesses the state of the valley gate. The valley gate is the lowest possible point of entry into the city of Jerusalem. The lowest possible point of entry into your life is your valley gate. When you're assessing your valley gate, you're asking the question, what do I do at my lowest point? All of us have a bar. And when I'm talking about the bar... Your valley gate is the worst thing you would possibly do in your worst possible situation. I mean, think of the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. You get home and your wife dumps you right after your boss fired you. You walk out in the street and realize somebody stole your car. You walk to the bus station and get robbed. And they take your clothes and your shoes and your wallet and and everything. And then when you're waiting for the bus, the bus runs over a puddle and splashes you with dirty water. I mean, the worst, if you think of the worst possible scenario, what gets in your gate at the lowest of low? You might say, even at that place, I would never kill somebody. Right? That that just one, even in my lowest place, my gate is set above murder. I just wouldn't murder somebody. Even in my lowest point, I wouldn't rape nobody. I mean, there's some stuff you say, that just won't get in my gate. I want to ask where, where is your valley gate and what is the state of your valley gate? At the lowest place, at your lowest place, on your worst day, what will you eat? On your worst, I mean, when your wife rejects you and you lost your job and, and, you know, and your, your, your account is in the negative and your friends have turned their back on you and your mama said she don't want you anymore. You're tired and depressed and overwhelmed. On that day, what do you eat when you open up the fridge? 
Are you going to eat two tubs of ice cream? Are you going to drink three bottles of Jack Daniels on that day? In other words, you got to go assess because you are only as strong. You are only as strong as your valley gate. Because I don't care how good you feel right now. See, a lot of people can do good when everything's good. But you're going to find yourself in the valley at some point. And if there's no gate in your valley, you'll find yourself into all kinds of foolishness that had nothing to do with your struggle. But if your valley gate is strong, he says, i got to go strengthen the valley gate so that even in the low place, I still can love my life. So that even in my lowest point, I still am not going to do that. I can't do that foolishness. No matter how mad I get, no matter how, my wife, how mad my wife makes me, I'm never going to hit her. Amen. I mean, that just, no matter what she does, it just won't get in my gate, right? You've got to have that for food. You've got to have that for physical health. You, gotta, you say, I'm not going to take any drugs because I'm down and depressed. I'm not going to drink myself under the table. Why? Because my valley gate is higher than that. Yeah. Now, the thing you need to understand about your valley gate is that it's got to be low enough to avoid legalism and high enough to avoid licentiousness. You following me? Because if your valley gate is too low, you let in all kind of foolishness when you're just a little bit discouraged. And if it's too high, you're just boring. I mean, I'm never going to set my valley gate so high that I can't have a cookie. I'm going to have a cookie. When we're talking about physical health, it's not making it. I will never again eat anything with sugar in it. I love me some sugar. Sometimes I need a little cup of ice cream. I'm going to set my valley gate high enough to let a little ice cream in once in a while. To let a little donut in once in a while. Are you hearing me this morning? Sometimes you've got to get a little cornbread. You can't live without cornbread. How are you going to live without cornbread? God did not create you. To live a cornbread-free life. It's not in the Bible. But it's going to be low enough. It's going to be high enough to make sure I don't let in so much cornbread that it kills me. You following me? And so that valley gate is so important. And then there's the dung gate. We got to talk about the dung gate. I don't even need to explain to you what the Dun Gate is all about. <laughs> See, all of these gates have been burned with fire. There's somebody in this room right now, your Dun Gate is on fire. <laughs> you, ate, you, ate, you ate some jalapenos and. <laughs> the Dun Gate was the exit point for anything foul, worthless, or disgusting. And outside of the dung gate was a huge heap, a huge pile where the people of the city discarded their dung. Wasn't a nice place to visit. And when you did visit, you didn't stay long. You got rid of your stuff and, and ran back into the city. What is the state of your dung gate? And I'm not talking about the place where the Lord split you on the day he created you. 
I'm talking about your process for discarding things in your life that are foul, (laughs) worthless, or disgusting. When you realize you've got something in your life that you need to get rid of, do you have a means of discarding it? Do you have a process of pushing it out of your city? Or do you feel like it's just, you're just stuck with it? In other words, has your dung gate been burned with fire? See, some of us here in this room need to rebuild the dung gate. Because you got it. And number two, what the dung gate does is it keeps the disgusting stuff outside. See, the thing about the the other gates is that they're they're, they're both entry and exit points. They're passageways. But the dung gate is exit only. (laughs) Stuff should be able to go out but not come in. You should never let anything come into your dung gate. It goes out only. Nothing comes into that gate. You need an escape hatch in your life where stuff goes out and nothing comes in. One purpose. And some of us need to rebuild the dung gate because you got stuff coming in your life through the dung gate. You following me? And so he looks, he assesses the valley gate and the dung gate. That's the low points. And then he assesses the high point. He moves on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. Now, the fountain gate is the entryway of encouragement, of inspiration, and of joy. The fountain gate is the highest point of entry into the city of Jerusalem. It is the the entryway of encouragement, inspiration, and joy. It is your best moment. Just like your valley gate is your worst moment, your fountain gate is your best moment. And, and you need to ask yourself this question. Yeah. What do you do? What do you allow into your city yeah. in the best moments yeah. of your life? Yeah. I'm talking about the best thing that could ever happen to you. Yeah. The woman that you are in love with said yes when you asked her the question, will you marry me? Yeah. And the jeweler gave you the biggest ring for free. The biggest diamond in the store, they gave it to you for free. And then you got a promotion at your job and went home and found out that you won the lottery. Right after your parents told you that you are their favorite child and gave you a brand new vehicle. I'm talking about at the moment of your highest rejoicing. Because, see, it's not just at our lowest points that we tend to destroy ourselves. We destroy ourselves at our high points as well. See, so many people destroyed themselves because of what they let in their city at their high point. You know, I recently read an article about a pastor who got a DUI. And when he was questioned about how in the world this well-known pastor could get get arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol, he said... My latest book was just accepted for publication by the editor. And so I took my family out to celebrate. And I had too much to drink at that celebration. At the moment of encouragement, he didn't get to, that didn't happen to him at the fountain, at the, at the, at the valley gate. It happened at the, at the fountain gate. It happened at the high point. At that moment of rejoicing. I mean, you can rejoice yourself right into the grave. See, some people kill themselves with mourning and sorrow. Other people kill themselves with joy. And so setting the gate in place at your fountain gate and asking, 
What is going to get into my city? And once again, you got to set the bar high enough to allow yourself really to rejoice, but low enough to keep out the kind of destructive foolishness that will stab you in the back in the moment of your rejoicing. See, it's like having a party at your house. You're going to dance like it's 1999. You're going to set up a strobe light on the ceiling. Right? You're going to have a party. You're going to have good food. But you're going to stand at the door. And if a, if a thug shows up at the door, you're not letting him into your party. Especially if he's bulging in his jacket. And you know he's packing. You're not letting anybody into your time of rejoicing that's going to shoot you in the chest in the midst of your dance party. And what happens is people at the fountain gate, at the high place, let stuff in. I was so happy, so excited for what God had done that I sat down and ate a whole tub of ice cream. Came in right through the fountain gate. And the next day I was so sad that I ate another tub of ice cream. No matter what I'm feeling, I find a reason to destroy myself. Whatever you allow to bubble up in your fountain is coming into your city. And you need to to make sure that your fountain gate is flowing with things that will preserve your well-being rather than destroy it. And then finally, he comes to the king's pool. The king's pool is your dwelling place. It's that place that you soak in. See, once everything comes into your city, it always ends up in the king's pool. After everything that's going out of your city has gone out, and everything that's coming into your city has come in, and you're soaking in the king's pool, what's floating around with you? In other words, what are you dwelling on? See, this one is last because it's the result of the others. For some of you here, you got stuff floating around your king's pool that should have went out through your dung gate. Some of you got stuff floating around your king's pool that should have never came in your valley gate. Some of you got stuff floating around your king's pool that never should have come in your fountain gate. Stuff that you let in either through a good time or through a bad time. But at the end of the day, it's now floating around your king's pool and now you got to swim in it. The last thing Nehemiah looked at was the king's pool. What is the result of all of the entering and exiting in my life? What is the result of everything I've let in and everything I've taken out? What's the result? What's left? Let's go to the king's pool and let's clean it out. And this is the place at which your assessment becomes real. What's in your mind right now? That's your king's pool. What's in your heart right now? That's your king's pool. What's in your body Right now. That's your king's pool. Some of us got some diseases in our king's pool that are not genetic. They're simply the result of the choices we've made. It's not every disease, but it's a lot. Some of us have some depression floating around our king's pool that's not genetic, but it has to do with some decisions that we've made. What are you soaking in? I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that the joy of the Lord is, is, is what I'm floating in in my king's pool. 
I want to make sure that the word of the Lord, I want to make sure that if you were to come into my king's pool and dip into its waters, that you would submerge yourself in the joy and gladness of the Lord, that you would find that my king's pool is chuck full of the righteousness of God and the joy of God and the power of God and and the things of God. I want to make sure that I didn't allow anything into my city that will contaminate the waters of my king's pool. And after Nehemiah assesses these four different places, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, and the king's pool, then he calls together the elders of Israel, and he says, I've got a dream, and i got a plan. We're going to fix this thing. I know things are bad. I saw stuff floating around the king's pool that should never be in this city. But i got a dream, and i got a plan. You know, some of you here today, you're assessing your lives even as I'm talking. And you're seeing stuff floating around your king's pool. You're seeing stuff that should have been pushed out of your dung gate. You're seeing stuff that should have never came in through your valley gate. You're realizing my valley gate, the bar is set so low that all kind of stuff that destroys me gets into my life. My fountain gate is set so high that all kind of stuff that should never come into my life comes in. And you're making some decisions right now. I've got to rebuild these gates. I've got I to gotta reset these levels. The thing you need to understand is we make excuses during those times. Well, I was having a bad day. Yeah. No, you made a decision. Yeah. You set the gate in its place. You need to make sure that no matter what kind of a bad day you're having, you never go back to that place. You need to make sure that no matter how good of a day you're having, you never go back to that place. You need to make a decision. I'm going to rebuild my gates and my walls. I'm going to make a decision that I'm not going back to this, and I'm not making any excuses for it. Well, this is why. This is what was happening in my life. This is what happened to me when I was six years old. You know what? Yes, maybe that is the immediate reason. But you need to make a decision to move past the, region, the reason. Because nothing controls the entryways of my heart and mind but me. It's time to rebuild. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd give us the strength to take a good hard look at the reality of today. You know, when I know I'm in debt and broke, can't pay my bills, I don't even want to open up the envelopes when that mail comes. So afraid of what I might find there. When I know I've been eating too much, I don't even want to step on the scale. Afraid of what I might find there. When I know somebody's mad at me, I don't even want to call them. Afraid of what they may say. When I know there's a problem between me and my wife, I don't even want to talk to her about it. Just want to pretend everything's okay. And if I can get by another day without facing this thing, I'm happy. Lord, we can't live like that forever. It's really a cowardly way of living. Lord, some of us are saying today, as we hear the words of this message, I'm not going to be a coward anymore. I'm not going to be a coward anymore. Because we're beginning to understand that cowardice has nothing to do with what is inherent to who you are. 
It's simply about the quality of my choices. I'm not going to act cowardly anymore. I'm going to muster my strength. Prepare me, Lord. Some of you need to begin that three days today. Prepare me, Lord. I'm going to look at this. Prepare me, Lord. I'm going to look at this. Right now I feel discouraged about it, but right now God fill me with encouragement. Prepare me to face it. Prepare me to get real with myself, to get real with my family, to get real with my God. Prepare me. I'm going to deal with this now. I don't know how. I don't, I don't feel like I have the strength or the wisdom. It seems like it's beyond me, but God, I'm taking this three days. I'm setting it aside and I'm saying, God, get me ready. Fill me with supernatural encouragement so that when I stop and look at this, it doesn't punch me in the stomach. When I look at how big the problem is, that it doesn't cause me to cry out, oh God, I have a big problem. But that there's enough faith in my heart to say, oh problem, I got a big God. Prepare me. Fill me with strength and wisdom and power. Put the right people around me to encourage me when I'm discouraged. Put the right people around me to motivate me when I'm passive. Prepare me to open my heart and listen when people say, boy, you better get back to this and you better fix it. Some of you need to take three days just to connect with some folks. You know what you want to fix and you know what you want to do and you got it in your heart. But before you do, you need to go get some relationships right. Because you can't do this thing on your own. See, most of us think, let me get myself right first and then I'll reconnect with the people I love. We do it with church. We do it with family. We do it with friends. We do it with our spouses. Some of us don't connect with our spouses anymore because... by myself I can only do this in relationship I can't fix myself and then come to God and I can't fix myself and then come to people I gotta come to God and say fix me and I gotta come to people and say will you help me can't fix myself and then come to church I'm not, I'm not coming to the church till I get this right no I need to come to the church and say help me get this right some of you need to take three days and just connect with people Go talk to the people you know you need to talk to. So I'm not coming here with any problem. I'm not coming here just because I need you. I'm coming here because I just want you to know that I want you, that I appreciate you in my life, that you're an important person to me. And I just want to be connected to you. You need to take three days, gather your strength, Connect with folks. Build intimacy. And then on the third day, you need to wake up early in the morning and say, okay, now I'm going to face it. It's time. I can't, I can't let another week go by and this thing is in the same place. Now it's time. It's time. 
I've been telling myself I'm going to do this for years. Now it's time. I say this is the day. This is the hour. This is the moment. This is the time. I'm going to do it now. No more waiting. You know, back in the 60s, during the civil rights movement, a lot lot of criticism came at the advocates of the civil rights movement. They were called troublemakers. And there was this very popular perspective called the gradualist approach. And advocates of the gradualist approach, they criticized the members of the civil rights movement and they said, you guys are stirring up trouble. You should just let it happen gradually. African Americans will one day become equal to white people, but it's just going to happen gradually. So stop trying to force it. Just let it happen gradually. Martin Luther King Jr. responded to the gradualist approach by writing a book called Why We Can't Wait. He said, you want us to wait for freedom? Let me tell you why we can't wait. Because it was in 1863 when Lincoln signed the, the Gettysburg, when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And yet a hundred years later, we're still not free. You want us to wait? At the rate things are going, it'll be 200, another 300 years before we got our freedom. No, freedom is never given by the oppressor. It must always be demanded by the oppressed. And we're demanding it. Listen, some of you here are are subscribing to the gradualist approach. Gradually, things are going to get better in your life. Gradually, your marriage is going to get better. Gradually, your relationships are going to get better. Gradually, God's going to heal me little by little. I'm not saying that you should try to make it happen overnight, but I'm saying you should wake up and make a decision that you're, gonna, you're not going to wait for it to drop in your lap. You're going to face the fact and figure out what to do about this thing. I'm going to face it. I'm going to look at it. The Bible says without weakening, weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that Sarah's body was as good as dead. He faced the fact. He was about 100 years old. Faced the fact that it was impossible without weakening in his faith. And God's going to teach you to face the fact without weakening in your faith. And you're going to be strong. And you're going to overcome this thing. You are not a victim. You're a victor. Come on. You're not a victim. You're a victor. You're not going to be a victim anymore. You're not going to live your life complaining about what happened to you and what's happening to you. You're going to wake up and begin to declare about what God is doing for you. You're going to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You're going to put on the whole armor of God that you might take your stand against the wiles of the devil. Come on, somebody. Come on, stand up on your feet and just begin to give God glory. Just open your mouth and begin to declare victory right now. Just begin to worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Worship the Lord. Just worship and praise him. Speak out your praises to the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, I thank you for the spirit of encouragement. 
that's flowing through this room. I thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Some of us here today are realizing we've let things in through the gates in our lives. But right now, in the name of Jesus, I break off any shame or condemnation. It's condemnation and shame. All they do is break your gates down more than they're already broken down. They don't fix them. What you need is faith, encouragement, and resolve. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I release faith, encouragement, and resolve. In Psalm 147, the scripture says he strengthens the bars of your gates. God wants to strengthen the bars of your gates. Build them up and give you the power. You know, later we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah that once Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls and set the gates in their places, then he began to jealously guard the gates. And the scripture says later in Nehemiah that some people tried to come into the gate on the Sabbath and he went and stood on the gate and said, don't you ever come back to this place on the Sabbath again. You come back to this gate, I'll lay hands on you. He threatened to lay hands on them the way my mama laid hands on us. And then they tried to camp outside the gate. He said, don't you dare try to camp outside this gate. You get up out of here. You need to speak to some stuff that's waiting on the other side of your gate, trying to come into your city. You need to speak to it and say, you're not getting in here. And don't you sit out my side, my city anymore. God wants to give you authority to guard the gates of your city. Nothing comes in that you don't let in. Nothing goes out that you don't push out. Some of you had your encouragement run out of your city. You need to pull it back into your city. You need to manhandle it and say, get back here, encouragement. Get back here, inspiration. Get back here, motivation. You're not leaving my city ever again. I just speak strength and encouragement over you right now. In Jesus' name. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say that you are the blessed of the Lord. May the God of peace, who through the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he bless you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. May he fulfill every good purpose of yours. And every act prompted by your faith. May he give you joy, strength, and encouragement. That you may glorify his name. Both now and forevermore. And in that precious name we say, Amen. God bless you. We're dismissed.